you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 8 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Tottenham, Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Good to see you, Mark. Uh, And on last week's show, you will remember that we went all techno uh, and had a very interesting discussion about the law's digital future with Barristers Gerard Grork and Stephen Dowling. A paperless future, Mark. Paperless and remote future where between getting rid of the, the the reams of paper and the the necessity for in-person hearings. The lads were very convincing, I have to say. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Well, today marks the return of a great friend of the show, nay, the best friend of the show, Supreme Court Judge Gerard Hogan, who is joining us in studio today to discuss the centenary of the trial of Erskine Childers. Uh, And he's going to go into great detail on that and our listeners are in for a treat. But first, Mark, let's look at three cases which you've identified from the Decisis website. Uh, The first is Duffy and McGee. It's a court of appeal decision in which Mr Justice Noonan and Mr Justice Collins gave important decisions. I know this is a a case that's close to your heart because it's all about expert evidence. The case involved a personal injuries claim arising from being exposed to poisonous fumes when insulation foam was sprayed into a family home in Donegal, something like that. They were putting in insulation. Uh, And then there was an issue with the attic and there was allegations that maybe fibres from the attic... Uh, So the defendants brought in an expert in order to try and help them win their case. He was an American toxicologist, but the court were not happy with this guy. They were deeply unhappy with him. So you're absolutely right. It was a case concerning a a house in Donegal where they wanted to put in spray foam insulation. And the contractors came in to to do the the spraying. And they didn't require the family to stay out of the house for 24 hours after the spraying was done. In fact, I think the mother and daughter came in very soon after the spraying had been done. But both parents and the daughter then developed quite serious lung damage, serious and permanent lung damage. Um, And they brought an action claiming that this was the result of having inhaled um, isocyanate, which I think is a derivative of cyanide, which was included in this spray foam insulation. Um, the, the defendants ha- had some experts, but they brought in another expert. This is a toxicologist. So this is a scientist rather than a medical expert, somebody who specializes in poisons, essentially. And at trial, he took what can only be described as something of a partisan view. He accused the plaintiffs of having deceived the court about when they had been in the house after the the spray foam insulation. He put forward an alternative theory that the lung damage had been caused by the inhalation of fiberglass because of the removal of an attic in preparation for this spray foam insulation. and so, it, so, so effectively, he was massively partisan massively. in favour of the defendants. And the court found that there was an abject failure to comply with the most basic obligation of an expert, namely to be objective and impartial. Exactly. Well, the trial judge d- dismissed his evidence in its entirety. And Mr. Justice Noonan said that he'd been absolutely right to do so. And both of them said they'd never come across such a partisan expert. But Mr. Justice Collins went a whole 
long way further because he was not only critical of the expert, he was also critical of the solicitors on both sides. He said, first of all, the solicitors for the defendant should never have put in a report that was as partisan as that. But he also criticised the plaintiffs for allowing the, the expert to be called without an application in at the, at the opening to, to exclude his evidence. He basically said that the lawyers should, should okay. be policing this. Okay, this raises wider questions in relation to experts and the role of experts. I mean, all of us go to court. We need an expert. We need somebody to verify our story. Um, you know, you're an expert in this area of expert evidence, if I can use the word again. Um, is it, you know, are there questions about this? I mean, let's say, for example, in personal injuries, you see certain individuals who pop up on one side and then certain individuals who pop up on other sides. Some are sympathetic, some are not sympathetic, but they're supposed to be experts. Yeah, well, I mean, as you know, I, I, I have written a little bit on, on the subject. And one of the things that interested me was that um, that, they, that the court cited a a um, a, a, a a Canadian decision called White Burgess, um, which was the, the the Canadian case on admissibility of expert evidence, and one of the things that said in that case, although I don't think it's been cited, it was cited in in Duffy, was that the the if you're reading an expert's report, it should effectively read as if it could have been written by an expert for either side. You shouldn't be reading it thinking this is somebody. But that's who's not the case in reality. Well, it it should be the case in reality, yeah, of and it certainly, be, but, it's not. but the I mean, what what you shouldn't find, and I think I think probably the practice is going to change, where the same expert gets called just by insurance companies or just by plaintiffs and is simply trying to trot out the same kind of information. You should almost be looking to choose an expert who has given evidence for the other side, because that evidence is much more likely to be accepted by the court. Okay, very good. Well, look, it, it, it's a really interesting decision. And I do think the area of expert witnesses, uh, it, it, it probably needs a bit of fine tuning at the moment. But I think this court case uh, will give an impetus uh, in that regard. Okay, next to the liability of directors, and indeed shadow directors, where it has been established that a company has been engaged in fraud. This is a decision of Mr. Ju Justice Toomey in the High Court called Powers and Grey Mountain Management Limited. Um, and in this case, the company had taken payments, I believe, as part of a massive international fraud involving financial products valued at something like 186 million. Mark, yeah. tell us more about this. Yeah. So the, the the company, as you said, Grey Mountain Management Limited, was Irish-based and basically was just taking payments in relation to this much wider scheme that was a, a type of investment into what I think were called binary derivatives, but uh, the, the nature of the investment doesn't really matter. But what the important thing is that it was a fraudulent uh, a scheme, that, and the the people behind it were a, a a couple of brothers who I think were Canadian Israeli, um, no links as far as I was, I'm aware with Ireland, but the Irish company had two Irish resident directors. And what they tried to establish in this case was whether the directors should be held personally liable. Now, the, the Canadian-Israeli brothers weren't directors of the company, but there is a provision now in Irish law that if you are effectively the person behind the company, the person with the management and control, you can be named what's called a shadow director. And so they did name these two individuals as shadow directors and held that they were personally liable for the fraud. So they, they, they pierced the corporate veil, yes. is the term we use. So the company wasn't just treated as a completely separate legal entity. And well, that's very significant, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But okay. then the other issue was 
was that the two Irish-based directors were described as what they called passive directors. And they said that if you are going to be a passive director and you don't take the proper control of the company, that then you can be held responsible for the outcome. And so they were also held... Can I read the quote? I liked it. A person, this is what the court found, Mr Justice Toomey found, a person who agrees to become a director of a company for strangers, that's kind of an interesting one, but then in effect hands over the keys of the company to enable those strangers to carry on whatever business they like, well, they must face the consequences. So you can run, but you can't hide. Okay, very briefly, finally, Mark, uh, this is a court of appeal decision into the domicile levy of 200,000, which is applied by the revenue commissioners. Uh, And this is for people who have worldwide income of about a million euros, I think it is, but have and have property assets of about 5 million euros. And they have to pay this 200,000 to the state if they don't pay sufficient amount of income tax. And this case involved Fitzgerald, it's called Fitzgerald versus the revenue commissioners. And the Fitzgerald is a very well-known Fitzgerald, Mr. Louis Fitzgerald, who owns all the pubs and a hotel, I think the Stag's Head, Kyo's. Um, um, yes. I don't think those are necessarily mentioned in the judgment, but the um, but the, the issue here, as you said, is that that in order to avoid uh, the, the the sort of tax avoidance that we're we're all familiar with, if somebody is Irish domiciled, has more than five million euros worth of assets in the state and a worldwide income of over of over one million euro, they are then liable for a domicile levy of two hundred thousand euro, and the applicant in this case sought to challenge this levy on the basis that although he did have a worldwide income of over a million euro, he also had expenses that brought it down. And they said that in this particular case, the types of expenses he was claiming were not sufficient to bring him below the million euro cut-off point. And so therefore, he was liable to the €200,000 levy. Okay, very interesting decision there in relation to that tax uh, issue. Okay, back shortly with Supreme Court Justice Gerard Hogan. Silence in the Fifth Court. Long-term listeners to the Fifth Court over the last two months will remember that our very first guest was Supreme Court Judge uh, Jared Hogan. And we're extremely fortunate to have uh, Mr Justice Hogan back in the studio again. On the last occasion, he was talking to us about the origins of the 1922 Constitution. But in what you might describe as a second half of the same lecture, today he's going to talk about the legal regime that existed during the interregnum between the treaty and the new constitution, where technically, legally, Ireland was part of the United Kingdom, but didn't necessarily want, the government of the day didn't necessarily want to acknowledge that. And that gave rise to the particular issue that arose in the uh, issue of Erskine Childers, whose, the centenary of whose trial, habeas corpus and execution uh, happened this very week. So, Mr. Justice Hogan, thank you very much for joining us again. Pleasure. So, this is the second part. The second part, indeed, yes. So, I mean, we could spend at least an hour talking about the career of Erskine Childers mm. himself. So, I'm just going to give a brief pen portrait before we get into the, 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 the issues of the day. But essentially, he was, he was one of five children born in the UK to an English father and an Irish, Anglo-Irish, I suppose, mother. Um, both of his cha- parents died when he was quite young. And so, he and his siblings all went back to Glendalough House, to the Barton family, to, to grow up. 
He then reached national attention or international attention with his spy novel, The Riddle of the Sands, which um, alerted people to the notion of German rearmament and I suppose uh, helped to, politically to, to, to ground British rearmament. Um, but he then became sympathetic to the to the, the national cause, the, the cause of Irish independence, and assisted with his boat, the Asgard, to arm the Irish volunteers. But unlike Casement, who I suppose is from a similar background, he didn't support the German side in the First World War. He actually joined the British Army during the First World War. But at the end of the war, was recruited by the negotiating team to become part of the, 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 the negotiating team in, in London during the, the treaty negotiations. But despite having been part of that team, then became anti-treaty um, and effectively went off on the run. And uh, I suppose this is where the where 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 we take up the story because he was um, uh, part of the the anti treaty the, the the Republican forces, and um, he arrived back in Glendalough House where a raiding party took place, and uh, and it was that arrest that gave rise to his trial. Um, so d- d- could you briefly outline what what was the charge that he? Yeah, the charge was that he was in possession of um, a weapon. Uh, it was a .22 automatic or semi-automatic pistol yeah. that apparently had been given to him by Michael Collins. Um, As a wedding present, some people uh, Yes, said. yes. Um, um, look, there's some suggestion that it was kind of little more than a toy pistol, but I think other people more familiar with um, firearms have told me subsequently that, uh, in fact, it could be quite a lethal uh, weapon, uh, it, certainly if used at a short range. And it was loaded. And it was loaded. Uh, and indeed, he one of the few things he said to the military tribunal, which more in a moment, um, uh, was that the reason that he didn't actually use the uh, the weapons um, or use the the pistol uh, on the raiding party uh, was because there was uh, women in the house. Uh, so, um, uh, but he was a particular target um, for the. A provisional government because he was in charge. Firstly, he had been secretary to the uh, treaty nego- delegation uh, and was regarded second only by by the provisional government, uh, second only to de Valera as, so to speak, a hate figure, in part because they regarded him as having been treacherous in his dealings. In other words, that he had gone along, been part of the treaty delegation, and then had come back and then decided... And signed the treaty, I think? Uh, uh, well, he was secretary. To, he was secretary. Um, I don't think he was actually... He was seven signatories. I, I don't think he was actually one of the signatories, but he was certainly there on the night as secretary to the delegation. Uh, and um, uh, and then, along with de Valera, repudiated the treaty and was in charge of propaganda uh, on the uh, anti-treaty side right throughout 1922. And there does seem to be a suggestion that he was personally disliked by a lot of the provisional government, yes. particularly Kevin O'Higgins. Yes. Well, that is said, uh, and um, uh, there were comments made in the Doyle when the first um, executions took place around the 17th of November 1922 to the effect that, look, these were ordinary um, uh, m- 
sort of volunteers who had who had been caught um, with with weaponry, and it was far better, as it were, to have them uh, executed than perhaps to take a, a, you know a high ranking person such as an Englishman and have him executed. So that wasn't, I think, a terribly judicious comment, but it was made by a government minister in the course of the Doyle debates on the very first executions. But perhaps. <clears throat> Just to put this slightly in perspective, um, uh, Mark, uh, by um, early July, by the 30th of June, um, the four courts had fallen. The civil war had started on the 28th of June. Um, um, in middle of August, of course, you have the, the twin shocking deaths of both Arthur Griffith on the 12th of August and then about 10 days later, followed by Michael Collins of Bale and Blow. But... Um, the Doyle then, the third Doyle then met for the first time on the 9th of September 1922 uh, and, as it were, got down to business. And there was really two items on the agenda uh, for that autumn session. The first, we've already spoken about the the, 1920, the con- 1922 constitution. It was the constituent assembly for the 1922 constitution, but also um, um, the it was the progress of the Civil War. And one of the um, complaints from the field, so to speak, on the part of the pro-treaty side, they had had significant successes. Um, uh, obviously, they had they'd won in Dublin in the sense that they'd retaken the four courts, uh, captured you know, the four courts executive. There's the shootout in O'Connell Street in which Carl Brewer was killed and so on. So, I mean, Dublin was under the control, of, largely under the control of uh, the provisional government at this stage. Um, uh, and then they turned their attention to Munster. There was the landings in Union of the uh, Free State Troops in Phoenix, uh, Union Hall. Then General Prout uh, was in charge of the provisional government forces taking over firstly um, Waterford through Carrick and Shore, then up to Clonmel. Uh, so, you know, there was very, uh, and of course, Cork fell then um, uh, shortly after that. So there were significant uh, victories in the field uh, for the free, for the provisional government, but the, there was still the problem, uh, and a very acute problem in terms of raiding parties, flying columns and so on uh, for the anti-treaty side. And the IRA, instead of sort of fixed positions and U.S. Civil War style, you know, mini battles such as happened outside Carrick and Shore or in, um, in in Douglas and South Cork. Uh, it was South more of a guerrilla army. Yeah, they, they, returned, they reverted to type in terms of more of a guerrilla army. So... Um, the uh, the uh, General Mulcahy wanted a situation whereby having what was he to do with people whom he captured, and there were certain strong complaints from the rank and file and from the officers of the National Army of look, it's all very well that these people are fire, you know are shooting at us, uh, and then we have to treat them as prisoners of war. So a conscious decision was made by the Doyle. Now remember, it was a unicameral. Doyle at that stage. It was only sitting as a constituent assembly. And, um, you know, we could debate of not terribly profitably uh, as to whether what legislative capacity it had. But what it did was it passed a resolution um, uh, at the end of September, which came into force on the 15th of October 1922. And under that resolution, if you were caught essentially in possession of weaponry without illegally you 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 could be 
could suffer the death penalty uh, following a military trial. Yeah. So, and and I suppose then the issue was the fact that it was a, a pre pre constitution doll. Mm. Um, it couldn't of itself pass legislation without at least under the existing constitutional order without being signed into law by George V. Personally. Personally. Yeah. And, 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 so, and the, the fear was, of course, that if they started executing people under legislation signed by George V, that, um, that, 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 that they might be seen as being in some way in league with the British, which was not really what they had fought for in the first place. Yes, and the, this was politically unacceptable. Um, they... If there was going to be legislation, it would be passed under the terms of the treaty and essentially when the constitution came into force, which was later on the 6th of December, and you would have an Oireachtas and you would have essentially it signed into force, not by the monarch personally, but by the governor general in the manner provided for by the constitution and by the treaty. And, and, and crucially, the governor general was appointed not by the British or by the king, but by the Irish government. Exactly. Yeah. And it was going to be Tim Healy uh, from, you know, took office from the 6th of December. So so then uh, Erskine Childers gets arrested yeah. under these military regulations yeah. under which if you are caught with, with, a, with a firearm, you can be sentenced to death. Yes. And then what happens next? What happens next is that um, he... Uh, he He's tried before a military tribunal in which, he, in which the judge advocate general is Kerr Davitt. Um, Kerr Davitt had previously been a judge of the Doyle Supreme Court, but taken the pro-treaty pro side and acquiesced in the dissolution of the Republican Doyle Supreme Court. Uh, so that was one of the institutions of the Irish Republic between yeah. 1919 and July 1922. Uh, there was four members of that court. Two of them took the anti-treaty side. They didn't recognise the di purported dissolution of that court. The other two, Mr. Justice Meredith and Ms. and Kerr Daffod, did. Uh, and Kerr Daffod, um, uh, that court had been wound up um, just as indeed it was going to hear a habeas corpus application around the the 26th of July 1922, um, Davit acquiesced in this and then was later appointed uh, by the provisional government to be the judge advocate general, or one of the leading judge advocates general, um, uh, essentially the lawyer or acting as quasi-judge presiding over military tribunals in the field. Now, Childers was lucky to get a trial because as the civil war went on, uh, the drift from legality uh, was even more marked and there was certainly some tension between Davitt and Mulcahy in that regard, Mulcahy being Minister for Defence. But by November uh, 1922, um, you know, the, the executions had really only just started with the first of them on the 17th of November. <clears throat> and that ha happened to be the date in which Childers' trial took place in Beggar's Bush bar Barracks with um, uh, David presiding. Now, the verdict was guilty. And what kind of a defence was put forward? Well, there was really no defence put forward. Um, um, Michael Common, um, uh, King's counsel, represented Childers, uh, and he would later represent a lot of Republicans, had done so indeed during the War of Independence, would do so um, in a number of habeas corpus applications throughout 1922, uh, and... Uh, was later appointed by de Valera to the 
Free State Senate in, and you know his citation was as were work on behalf of Republicans, uh, legal service on behalf of Republicans, um, and but Common just sort of complete Common's picture uh, fell out with De Valera when he wasn't appointed Attorney General uh, when Fianna Fáil came to power in March 1932. But that's another long story. Sure. But back into the middle of November 1922, um, uh, Childers is rep- represented by Michael Common. And uh, essentially, the only defence put forward was that actually he would have used this revolver, but for the fact that um, Childers being the kind of consummate uh, gentleman, uh, that there were women in the house and he didn't want to do so that. So more of a plea in aggravation than mitigation. Uh, he wasn't well, begging a, for his life, was Well, he? it was an unusual plea in mitigation. But what then happened was that uh, there was an application for habeas corpus. Now, uh, Childers... <clears throat> said in his affidavit and you know, there's a wealth of historical detail for anybody interested in this in the, in the 1923 volume one of the Irish Report. Uh, from memory, I think it's page five. It's at the start, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I have it beside my bed. <laughs> uh, wow. But but you have called. you have all the affidavits set out there. Very help, you know. And there's a lot of contemporary detail. But what's interesting was was that um, Childers decided that an app- decided to permit an application for habeas corpus. And why? Because he said he was aware that there was eight other persons under sentence of death who didn't have the kind of the means or the wherewithal or the connections and so on that he did. And therefore, he want, he was willing to allow his case to go forward um, uh, with an application to the high court. Um, and this was, in a sense, the British courts at this stage, um, uh, which were only wound up in June 1924. But they were presided over over by, um, Sir, by the Master of the Rolls. Um, the application was to Charles O'Connor, who was Master of the Rolls. Uh, and um, the, within hours of the conviction, um, uh, there was deep concern on the part of the children's legal team <clears throat> that the execution would take place. Finally, late at night, uh, on the Friday, the execution was to take place the subsequent Thursday. But on the the Friday, the night, they managed late at night to get through to a chief state solicitor who, and then in turn to Davitt, who gave an undertaking that that um, essentially Childers nor, nor any of the other eight would be executed over the weekend. Uh, and then they managed to make an application to Charles O'Connor in his own home um, on two or three times that weekend. They got they had difficulty serving the papers um, on the provisional government, but ultimately they were served. Uh, and um, the uh, matter was then returnable to to O'Connor at. The, mo- the habeas corpus motion um, was returnable to two o'clock um, on the Monday, um, with O'Connor sitting in the um, uh, in the Great Hall in King's Inns. And so the issue that they were bringing forward essentially was these military regulations that have been brought in have no legal validity whatsoever. Yep. They weren't signed by the king. They haven't been signed under the Free State Constitution. They, they are they're, they're a nullity. Exactly, and. Um, that was the that was the issue uh, which was debated over four days. But interestingly, when the matter came before um, 
uh, first before O'Connor at two o'clock on the Monday. The uh, Hugh Kennedy, then legal advisor to the provisional government, would become attorney general uh, on the 6th of December and then in June 1924 would become chief justice. But Hugh Kennedy, along with Timothy Sullivan, later president of the High Court, um, said to O'Connor... that they wanted an adjournment to put in an affidavit. And uh, O'Connor, uh, Nash, Michael Common said, oh, naturally, of course, they wanted to buy time. They were only too happy to have the, the matter adjourned. But Kennedy then said the only problem was he wasn't authorised to give any undertaking that the stay on the execution would continue. And O'Connor said very tartly uh, to Michael Common, well, Mr. Common, you must ma- make up your mind. We know that in matters of this kind, adjournments may be fatal. So, uh, yeah, so um, it kind of puts the Monday morning list, uh, motion list into perspective, I think. Uh, But anyway, the case continued over three, four days um, um, in the Great Hall in King's Inns. And the principal issue was whether or not uh, these military regulations were lawful because there was only a resolution of the Doyle and not an act, a formal legislative enactment. And, of course, as you've said already, Mark, the reason why it wasn't a formal legislative enactment was that this would have required the personal assent of George V, which they were unwilling, of course, the provisional government were unwilling to have. And then, ultimately, uh, what was uh, Charles O'Connor's decision? Charles O'Connor um, um, gave judgment reputedly by candlelight at uh, uh, 8 o'clock on the Thursday night, which was the 23rd of November, 1922. Uh, and um, he made light work of that argument uh, because he said, you know, um, that was simply a technical point and that any government has to have physical force behind it. And um, and, and that was sufficient, he said, to dispose of the argument. And he, he quoted um, the Latin, old Latin maxim, which was then later much used by the pro-treaty side, uh, salus populi suprema lex, that the welfare of the people is the ultimate law. And um, after he delivered his judgment, and remember, the atmosphere in King's Inns must have been incredibly in, uh, intimidating in that there was, uh, it was surrounded by um, a troops of the provisional government. So it was a very, inti- must have been a very intimidating atmosphere. Do, uh, do we know if it was a public hearing? Where, where yes, there was a public, public hearing, yes, there was a public hearing, yes. And, um, you know, uh, and, and certainly it was, every line uh, is reported almost transcript-like, uh, reported verbatim and reproduced in the in the media, both in Britain and in Ireland. Um, but, at all events, um, uh, O'Connor comes and gives his judgment at 8 o'clock. In many ways, a very angry judgment. You know, he says, uh, this is, it has to be a state of war. You know, um, why am I sitting here? 
I know that the most noble building, you know, noble building which housed the king's justice for centuries has been destroyed, that railways have been broken up and mansions destroyed and and so forth. He had a long list of things that were happening. He said, and then he, he, he posed a question rhetorically, if this is not a state of war, I would like to know what is. And that and the, to the argument that, well, the courts were still sitting, he said, well, how how is the... Supreme Court, by which he meant the High Court and Court of Appeal, uh, in that instance, Supreme Court of Judicature, how is that functioning? He said, only under the, you know, it's not functioning as in times of peace, only by reason of the exceptional dedication of its staff and so on. And then, having delivered the judgment, um, O'Connor, an application was made to O'Connor by Common for a stay. Um, uh, And the idea of a continuing injunction on the execution and O'Connor said um, that uh, he couldn't give a stay. He had formed the view he had the court had no jurisdiction. He, as he put it, the high court's jurisdiction has been ousted by the state of war which Erskine Childers himself has, has helped to create. So he wouldn't grant a stay. Uh, and um, um, now, an appeal was immediately lodged to the Court of Appeal. Um, and we know that a similar case, raising a similar issue um, involving a mother and a daughter called Johnston from Donegal, was actually heard by the Court of Appeal within days. So there's no doubt, but the Childers' appeal could have been heard within days. And the verdict that Johnston case resulted in a 2-1 decision upholding the resolution with one judge, Stephen Ronan, dissenting. Um, But an appeal was immediately lodged. But um, the Childers was taken out and executed at dawn that morning. Uh, And, uh, I mean, law of the bar has it that... uh, um, Childers' counsel only found out about this um, uh, when they arrived for work the next day. Uh, So, um, um, so the net effect of it was that because there was no stay granted by O'Connor, that there was no legal impediment to Childers being executed and given that there wasn't any, he was in fact executed. Shocking from a modern perspective, but I suppose times of war give rise to uh, to very different consequences. But really the, the idea that that you could be executed pending an appeal does seem particularly harsh. Well, to our ears, of course, I mean, you can't read, you know, take out that volume of the Irish reports and read it and you can't but come across and see just how awful the civil war was. And of course, worse was to come uh, in that we had the the execution of the four on the 8th of December 1922. They didn't even get a trial. Uh, and there was certainly no application for habeas corpus. They were woken up in the middle of the night and essentially going to told that they were going to be shot at eight o'clock the next morning. And that was in by way of reprisal and not revenge, but reprisal for the killing of Sean Hales um, uh, as, uh, along with Omolia as they were going to Leinster House. But I mean, to come back to Childers' case, um, one small detail uh, was that O'Connor afterwards uh, was um, 
appointed a judge of the first Supreme Court uh, in June 1924. But he resigned on the 30th of April 1925, you know, having served only about nine, ten months. And he and his wife, um, in a sense, up sticks, so to speak, and went to London. And the private papers of the O'Connors and gives the impression that this happened all very suddenly and that really, you know, the O'Connors never fully personally recovered from the personal ordeal for him um, of the Childers case. And, you know, you sometimes wonder whether the Childers case left a personal mark on him too. Gentlemen, that has been absolutely fascinating. It's an incredible story, a very sad story. Jared, I'm listening to this and just thinking how sad it was and what great people we lost at the foundation of the state. And you mentioned there the 8th of December, which is the centenary anniversary of the deaths of four people, Rory O'Connor, Liam Mellows, Dick Barrett. And And Joe Joe McKelvey. Joe McKelvey. And I know you said to me... One from each province. One from each province. And I know you said to me that, you know, when we were talking beforehand, you said you're a centenary dad because you've been given a lot of talk about these people, mm-hmm. but it's a very profound experience. Can I ask you about the four of those? I know it's it's we were mm-hmm. talking about the, mm-hmm. the anniversary, the, the centenary of the mm-hmm. death of Erskine Childers. But, you know, again, as you said, the, they were reprisals. Mm-hmm. And again, it was an administration that carried those out. Mm-hmm. You know, were they lawful? Was there law underpinning what happened? No, there was. I mean, you couldn't say it was lawful. There wasn't even really a pretense of legality. But let's, you know, and, and uh, I, I spoke yesterday yesterday at a centenary event organised by UCC History Department on this, you know, certainly, um, uh, you know, Dick Barrett, a very saintly, uh, noble soul, you know, who said an hour before his death that, you know, the cause is too holy to be uh, sullied by ignoble acts. So, but, you know, but let's not mince words about this. Um, You know, there was a vote, rightly or wrongly, um, by the second Doyle um, on the 7th of January, 64-57 in favour of the treaty. And, you know, if one lives in a democratic state, uh, you have to accept a vote of that kind. You mightn't like it. And you might have thought, for example, as some people do, that the treaty negotiators could have done a better job or whatever. Uh, but rightly or wrongly, the second Doyle uh, voted for this, which is an all-Ireland Doyle, and there was no oath of allegiance or anything like that. Um, it voted for the treaty. And um, what's more is that In the election on the 16th of June, 1922, for the third Doyle, even despite the the Collins-De Valera Pact of May 22, um, the vote for the pro-treaty side, on any view, was overwhelming. So you believe that that gives the provisional government an element of legitimacy or legitimacy on the basis of a democratic vote and therefore the anti-treatyites you see as being sort of a challenging, you know, the fabric of society basically and, and the administration that was in legitimately in place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my view of this is that essentially what happened was that, go back to March 22, the, um, the IRA, which had previously, um, each member of the IRA had to swear an oath of allegiance to Doyle Aaron. 
and where the Doyle had asserted its power over the army. That there was then an army convention in which Rory O'Connor played a very big role, which essentially mutinied against the Doyle in March 22, repudiated the civil power, and then proceeded to take over the four courts. Now, um, I mean, I, I think uh, the best way of looking at the Civil War was that, in essence, it was a form of army mutiny, uh, because certainly the majority of the fighters on the, you know, in the field said, you know, this isn't what we signed up for. Um, the only problem was is that, you know, the democrat, the only democratic institution we had, which was Doyle Aaron, voted for this, and subsequently there was a general election. Admittedly, for you know, what, what is the twenty six counties, this state, but but the, the results of that general election showed overwhelming support for the treaty, rightly or wrongly. Yes, um, and my <clears throat> point is is that you know, in a democratic society. If you have a situation whereby you, so to speak, taste the uh, taste the apple, uh, you know, you commit original sin, and there was original sin on the part of the anti-treaty side. Now, it was met with a response from the provisional government and free state that you might say was disproportionate. Uh, well, maybe. brutal, maybe even cruel, but they saw themselves harsh. at the uh, and harsh, but they saw that the very fabric of democracy was. Uh, under challenge, and you know it was certainly an extremely difficult. I, I time. think you made a comparison between Ireland and Finland, where I think where, where, whereas maybe something in the region of seventy-seven to eighty-one people were executed here, whereas yeah. in the Finnish civil war, something several thousand were executed. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the sort of the figure that I, one used to hear when I was growing up was seventy-seven. Um, um, uh, I think unusually the, turns out to be something of an understatement. It's something of an understatement. I think. Probably 81 to 83 people were actually executed uh, in the um, uh, the military tribunals. On top of that, of course, there was unofficial reprisals, of which the most you know shocking was Bally CD in uh, March of 1923. Yes. Yeah, but we were talking about maybe 100, 120 people in Finland. Um, similar population to us. Civil war around the same time, much shorter period. The whites. Executed almost eight, executed almost eight thousand people. Gosh. The Reds, two and a half thousand people. Yeah. So that puts what happened in our civil war, yeah. terrible and shocking as it was, in some perspective. Ne- needless to say, we could talk about this all evening and for several more podcasts. But we have a, a, an almost more important question to ask you, which is: Have you got a, another book on top of the one you off- re- recommended the last time that you'd like to recommend to any lawyers or law students? Yeah. Two, if I may, Mark. Certainly right. Is. Okay. The first is uh, Donald O'Sullivan's The Irish Restate and its Senate, published in London of 1940. Uh, and that might sound, he was, O'Sullivan was the clerk of the Free State Shannon. And you might think that sounds a very dull book, but it is a living, um, it is a beautifully written book that gives you almost a virtual reality. Uh, year by year from 22 to 37. And it is an amazing chronicle 
of those years. Including, uh, unusually, all of the members of the Shannon who included sort of various titled landowners. So yes, you, but you also won- people like W.B. Yeats and, you know, Winnie My- um, Minnie Wise Power and various other, uh, you know, very Oliver St. John Gogarty, very interesting people. Mm. Um, but it's, it's a classic book. Um, and the other book I mentioned is, which I think is a classic, uh, is um, Lazarus's Closed Chambers, um, which is an account written in about 1999 by a former U.S. Um, uh, Supreme Court clerk to Justice Blackman. It is a brilliant yeah. tour de force introduction to U.S. constitutional law, U.S. constitutional history and the U.S. Supreme Court. And maybe that's our cue to say, will you come back again? I mean, we've, we've loved having you. You've been here. You're, you're, you're the ultimate friend of the show, Jared. But, you know... With, Peter, with, speak to my agent. Well, we'll have to speak to your agent and we'll have to get into negotiations because just you've mentioned that book about um, Lazarus Closed and that's kind of, you've written on that topic and that brings in Roe versus Wade and that was something I was going to talk to you about but we went on and on and on with this wonderful information yeah. uh, about our school well, children. So we, we, we might do that again on another occasion. These, you know, I, we let a few months uh, of an interval and spare your your uh, listeners but uh, uh, anything, we we might speak a little bit more of US constitutional history in the I, lead I think up we to might Roe be able to get Wade, you because you, know. you may have a show on lyric at that stage because you have another <laughs> Sibelius piece to recommend. Ah, yes, I do. Tell us yes, about it. I do. Um, uh, oh, Mama, my my country, written in the middle of the Finnish Civil War, and is essentially Sibelius's plea for sanity in the midst of terrible chaos. And that I think has an echo for today. And I would also add Aaron Copeland's Lincoln Portrait, which has extracts from some of his great speeches uh, against this or, or magnificent orchestral background, finishing with the Gettysburg Address. And so there's two wonderful pieces with a Civil War theme that I mention as a sort of a, an air of sanity and reconciliation, uh, given the chaos and the, uh, uh, of what was happening in this country 100 years ago. Well, to coin a phrase, Jared Hogan, thank you very much for letting us hear your Civil War discs. Thank you so much. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Uh, can we say a huge thank you, a very special thank you to Mr Justice Gerard Hogan for coming in today and talking to us about the centenary of the Erskine Childress trials and other incidents that happened in the Civil War. Absolutely fascinating, Mark. Extraordinary stuff. And it does make you realise how, how fortunately we are to, to live in a, a stable democracy. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. OK. And I would like to say a big thank you to our producer, Colonel O'Moroin, uh, and also to the Dublin South podcast studios and Lee out there outside the window for a wonderful job in recording this show. Uh, and if you have any comments or any legal stories, we, uh, if you'd like to raise them with us, please contact us uh, on our website or on LinkedIn, or you can get in touch with us whatever way you want. But we would love to hear from you. We really would. Uh, and Mark, our parting message, as always, is to share. Absolutely. Yeah. Any friends or colleagues who you think might be interested, do, do, do ping them on a link to this podcast. And when you're finished sharing, share a little bit more. Isn't that it? That's right. Okay. So from me, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next week in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out 
Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.